Start picking. Bay. A. One. Stop. Quantity. Five. Move on. A week doesn't go by where I check the front door and there are at least one or two packages waiting for me from Amazon or Target. I'd venture to say this is probably also the case for many of you listeners out there. According to Big Commerce, one dollar in every three of discretionary income is spent online. And according to Walker Sands, an average of two in five U.S. consumers, that's 41%, receive one to two packages from Amazon per week. We live in the age of e-commerce, where brick and mortar brands are struggling to reshape their businesses around the speed of a tap or a mouse click. It's no wonder a company that specializes in warehouse and packaging efficiency is experiencing a surge of growth and interest in their wares now. It's poetic that the man behind this company happens to have also played a quiet and yet monumental role in building the digital age. Before Steve Jobs and Bill Gates were duking it out over market share, Jack Peck was founding the computer science department at Clemson University. This is at a time when no one really knew what a computer was. I got the impression from our conversation that Jack is proficient in at least a dozen programming languages, from assembly to Fortran to C-sharp. But the topic quickly turns to arguably the most multifaceted language of all, that of business, innovation, and teamwork. This is Of Note, a podcast on innovation. I'm Laura Quarter, Managing Director of South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation. And I'm Joseph Nutter, co-founder of Design Sensory and Pop Fizz. We're talking to some of the most interesting minds in the South. They're hands-on, they're driven, and they're sharing their notes on invention, funding, entrepreneurship, growth, and so much more. I'm Jack Peck. I'm president of FastFetch Corporation. Uh, FastFetch develops hardware and software for order fulfillment, that is picking in distribution centers. Very, very small ones and very, very large ones. Our, all of our products are scalable. These products are a combination of voice, wireless barcode scanning, and light-directed technologies that we put together in an interesting way. We do have patents. We have two U.S. patents. We have seven international patents and two U.S. patents pending on some of the solutions that we've come up with. Jack's company, FastFetch, has provided order fulfillment solutions to major companies in industries ranging from food and supplements to cosmetics and jewelry. Like many great leaders we've talked with, he has his hands in every facet of the business. Do a little bit of everything. (laughs) All the way from doing the fun things like design and implementation, working with customers, working with my employees, all the way out to taking out the garbage, I suppose. You do all of that type thing if you're a small company. We're going to dive into how Jack is building a company and an idea that could completely change the world of e-commerce. But before we do, let's take Jack's story from the top with how he found his love for computer science as a student. I was actually a math major, physics minor. There was really very little computer science anywhere in the country. The university where I attended, the University of Southwestern Louisiana, was one of the few that actually had a computer used in the classroom. And so uh, I learned to program actually as I was 
in, about in, in the ninth grade in, in high school. But uh, later on, when I got into college, I took as much computer science courses in mathematics, actually, as I could. Got hooked on it, and uh, I've been doing it ever since. After almost 10 years of studying in the mathematics field at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, Jack turned his sights to teaching and, with the help of some colleagues, would find himself landing a job at Clemson University in 1971. Several of the faculty members where I got my undergraduate degree had moved to Clemson into the math sciences department. Uh, one of them was department chair at the time, another was dean of the college. And so uh, one of my friends happened to be a graduate student in math sciences and uh, said, hey, there's a, hope, there's a job opening up in Clemson. And uh, so I applied and talked to the uh, two individuals whom I knew many years before and uh, got, was offered a job and I'm here. When I came to Clemson, I was in mathematical sciences, which was a combination of a lot of different areas of mathematics, statistics, operations research, you know, modern algebra, those types of things. I was really the first computer science faculty member hired at Clemson uh, back in 1971. I was then went to the, as director of what was called the Division of Information Systems Development on the university, still active, by the way, on the campus, uh, where we did a lot of development of systems for state government. Did a lot of work for the governor's office back then, too. As a result of that, I had quite a number of graduate students who were attracted to the program uh, in math sciences. Because of the fact that we had so many students that became interested in computer science, we spun off really a separate department, the computer science department. And I was really the first faculty member in that department. After the computer science department was formed in 1975, Jack would eventually go on to become the department head, spending more than 30 years with the university. And he saw a lot of change in the field during that time. Computer science was still developing, as you might imagine. In fact, if you look in the dictionary, in 1960, a computer was a person who computes, uh, uses a calculator for the most part. Started in what's called machine language on the IBM 1620, it's a very old machine. Uh, went up to what's assembler language, a little bit in symbolic programming. Uh, went up to Fortran, went up to COBOL, uh, and of course, many other languages between there and where we are now with C-sharp. One of the things that is probably kind of humorous, nothing I ever took as an undergraduate or a graduate student did I really teach. The field moves so fast, you have to educate yourself into the new subjects so that you can keep up in the field and present to your students the newest developments. People are having to stay on top of the changes, and it's, it takes a lot of work to stay on top of the changes in computing if you're a faculty member. But you have to stay on top of them if you're going to prepare your students to jump right into the workforce and be effective. Uh, as a faculty member, you could see things coming that typically you don't see as just a layman. But even with that, there are a lot of things that have, that have come about that nobody could have predicted. The field is so wide, the number of places that computers are applied today is so large that no one person can keep up with all of it. Now, Laura, is this the first time you met Jack? It is, actually. And I, you know, of course, he came across my desk more from just his fast fetch uh, and the company that he's built. But, you know, getting there on site and digging into his history with Clemson, it's kind of mind boggling that I feel like we're kind of sitting in, in front of like computing royalty a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, somebody that's was there at the forefront when computers were just being created and, and computing even even being languages even being created. Um so to sit there with him and to him naturally have, have really pushed this and seen what it would do for the future um, and creating you know an entire school for it within Clemson, the impact of that is kind of mind boggling. Um, you know, it's it's 
trained thousands of students and the program has now even been ranked in number six among academic institutions, uh, number 60 worldwide, and it's, it's been listed on top 500 supercomputing sites. Um, so I think, you know, aside from all of his business achievements, his academic uh, impact is really phenomenal. I, I don't know how else to really summarize it. I mean, he's a true pioneer. Yeah. Isn't he? There, yeah. Yeah. I love that line of him being royalty because it, it just, it, 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 and you're right, it, it, we didn't know that mm. um, coming into his space and to meet somebody who I'm sure has had an impact on, on something within our daily lives. Um, well, and his students have gone on and been hired by Amazon, MetLife, Boeing, I mean, big, big companies. So like, it's like, it makes you wonder what would have happened had he not have started the, the department itself. And he's seen so much. Yeah. Um, and he's still and he's still not satisfied to sit back, is he? No. That sounds like he's always gonna keep innovating. It's what keeps it's what it's it's, it's who in he his is. DNA. Right. So it's actually helped you uh, uh, by being a teacher, by being an instructor, a professor, that has actually helped you in business. Absolutely. There, there are a whole variety of things that help me in the academic world to get to where we are in the uh, industrial world. And uh, the things that were helpful, of course, were trying to be innovative. As a faculty member, you have to look for problems, and then you look for solutions to those problems. The same happens in industry if you're going to be successful. You're not gonna do the same thing day in and day out. So to that degree, it was helpful. But as a faculty member, you're a little bit shielded. You know, you don't have to worry about making payroll. Money's gonna, even as a department chair, the money's gonna be there for payroll. And quite honestly, I think the experience that I came out with in academia, I mean, you have to present your ideas clearly in a concise form, really, uh, to the students. If they're going to go away in a short period of time and be successful with those ideas. If you're wondering how Jack went from academia to entrepreneur, it all began during his time as a faculty member. As a faculty member, you're encouraged to do research. Some of it is funded by the government, but as a faculty member, you have to put your kids through school. And my kids chose to go to private schools that were fairly expensive. And so I had to do something, as many faculty members do, during the summers and in their off hours consulting, that type thing, to stay abreast of, uh, of developments in the field and also to bring in some extra income. And so I started Foxfire back in 1987. We actually started out with, with Foxfire doing real-time shop floor control manufacturing. And our primary focus was in the apparel industry. So I learned a lot about apparel manufacturing. And of course, when you finish manufacturing a product, you often put it in the warehouse. So as a natural outgrowth of that, I uh, learned a lot about warehousing. Then of course, a lot of the apparel manufacturing went offshore to the Caribbean, Central America, South America, the Far East. And there was very little of the apparel manufacturing left in the United States. So we transitioned over to become specialists in software development for warehouse management. Uh, the warehouses were still located here because you want them close to the customers. And the customers are here, even though the manufacturing might be offshore. So that's how I learned a lot about warehousing. Having seen a lot of warehouses, gone into them, worked with the people uh, over the years, I learned a lot about warehousing. It just, I didn't just read about it in a book. I sold the company in 2007 after 20 years. So Foxfire, Jack's company before FastFetch, produced software to help manufacturers increase efficiencies all around. Foxfire not only introduced him to the world of warehousing and distribution, but also to the world of business. 
I was chairman of the board of the company from the administrative side, but I was always involved in the development of the software. And at times, unfortunately, writing some of the software. The problem with writing some of the software is you might get calls in the middle of the night <laughs> in terms of support calls. So I found it better to hire people to do that and then I could go fishing occasionally. Learned a lot about how to run a business. There's a lot more to it than you, that you don't learn in the computer science department, even as department chair. And so a lot of learned a lot about how to run a business, how to keep the books, uh, how to work with the banks, how to work with the customers, how to work with the employees. So I grew quite a bit, really after, well, while I was at the university, but that was part-time. In 2000, when I was re retired from the university, I became full-time with Foxfire. And at that point, of course, I learned a whole lot more. <laughs> Visited many different warehouses, saw many different kinds of operations, saw many different kinds of problems, and came up with some unique solutions to some of those problems. And as a result of seeing those those problems and developing the solutions, we spun off FastFetch, took it out of Foxfire, and uh, then sold Foxfire. Up next, the opportunities Jack saw that led him to pivot to FastFetch. This podcast is part of Scribble, South Carolina's voice of innovation. We celebrate and support the innovative activity across the state by connecting people to people. Visit ScribbleSC.com for exclusive interviews, tools, and resources. That's scribblesc.com. As a longtime technologist, we asked Jack what he may have seen coming in the industry that led him to invest more in fast fetch. Well, certainly e-commerce is one thing we saw coming quite a number of years ago and have built products to assist in that area. A lot of companies have not gotten into e-commerce and as a result of that, they're not here. Well, take a look at Sears. <laughs> you know, where's Sears today? You know, they chose to, to have their, their catalog for many, many years and have the big store with the brick and mortar. You know, then you look at Amazon. You know, and Amazon is, of course, you know, the big leader. They started out very small, but they had a great idea and they built upon it. Uh, so e-commerce is one of the areas we saw coming and we built products, like I say, to, uh, to address those needs. I think that as we look forward to uh, many of the other kinds of businesses, people are getting into there. So there's great opportunities for what we're doing right now. We're right now working with one of the big underwear companies. Sounds mundane, but uh, you know they're just now getting to e-commerce and I, I believe they're gonna be buying our products. I don't wanna name them, of course, but uh, I think we're gonna really, really help them from the start. As you heard at the top of the show, FastFetch has developed a number of software and hardware solutions for distribution centers. These patented ideas could greatly increase accuracy and efficiency in a warehouse. But Jack is pushing his industry forward in other ways. Just one example, packaging. Many people know the dimensions of the items that they're selling. And in e-commerce, you might order three or four or five items, uh, maybe more than one quantity of each item. But it's generally a small number of things that people are ordering with e-commerce. And then you want to put them in a box. Well, the question is, what size box should you put them in? And if most companies have somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 boxes to choose from. And I'm sure that uh, you've seen many times when you open a box, there's a little bit of something and a ton of dunnage, you know, cardboard or filler in there to protect it from rolling around too much. Well, the big carriers, UPS, FedEx, DHL, they've all started charging more now based upon the dimensions of the boxes they're shipping versus the weight. So if you're shipping a big box with just a little something in it, you're paying a big price for doing that. Well, they, they started that about two years ago. 
And uh, many companies are now paying a lot for the shipping that they didn't used to be paying for. What we've done, we developed algorithms using AI. So that given the dimensions of the items that you're going to be shipping, we will then understand how to place these items and orient them in the box in such a way that we will find the minimum size box among those 10, let's say, uh, that you might be using for shipping. Most people just eyeball it, take a guess and ship a lot of air. We've also come up with products recently, so rather than having 10 boxes, you could have 100. And if you have 100 boxes, obviously you're gonna ship a whole lot less air. But the problem comes up then, what 100 boxes should you have to be shipping all of these products that you have in e-commerce? And so that's a very challenging problem and a very computationally intensive problem. And quite honestly, if you were to just try to brute force it by looking at all combinations of boxes that could be uh, designed to ship the stuff that someone has been shipping for the last million orders, you're talking about years and years and years of computational time. I mean, centuries. And so we've developed techniques for coming up with answers for that in just a few minutes. We can tell you the 100 box sizes. Then the next problem is, once you have decided what 100 box sizes to use, how do you pick among those 100 boxes? Because when you think about packing items, not only do you have to understand how the different ways every item can be oriented, but there are certain items that, for example, uh, tapered trash cans, where they can be nested one inside the other, and they would have a hollow center where other things could go in there. And things like uh, once you are, have put an item in, you can't put another item on top of it, it'll crush it. So you have to understand all of those constraints in terms of how you know, we can place items in boxes. Again, it's computationally intensive, but you have to come up with an answer in less than a second. So doing that is an extremely challenging computer science problem. So how does Jack build a company equipped to take on big problems? We asked for some of his business advice. Ethics is extremely important in business. You know, it takes a long time to get the confidence of your customers, but it doesn't take long to get rid of it if you uh, do things that are unethical. In terms of uh, running the company and the employees, my motto is, if you can at all, hire people that are smarter than you. Because again, if you don't, then you're going to have to do a lot of the work yourself that you really ought to be giving to your employees. I think that to share the, the, the wealth of the company is, is a good idea too. We, we have given shares in the company to the key people, for example, in both Foxfire and in FastFetch. And as a result of that, they're still with us. The other thing is bonuses. At the end of the year, if the company made money, guess what? They're going to get healthy bonuses. Uh, and so they're going to hang around and they're going to do what, what they can to control expenditures and, of course, maximize income. When we started uh, FastFetch, we, we started like a lot of people do, self-funding, and nobody wanted to spend a lot of money, so a lot of us put in time rather than money. And as a result of that, we've had no outside investment. Uh, so we've grown organically with the sweat and equity of the people that were starting the company. Some of us had other income, like I was retired and so was my partner Ed Page retired. So we had other income. We didn't have to worry about putting beans on the table. Some of the people didn't. So we, we funded you know, the company ourselves internally so that we could attract and maintain the good people. And as I said before, uh, give them a share of the company, make them have some equity and some interest in what happens good and bad. Well, I think you need to get started in particular with people you trust. And typically, if you trust them, you know them. So it's not just saying, oh, this person has skill A and I have skill B, let's put them together and we're gonna be successful. It takes more than that. I learned to start my companies uh, with people I knew and trusted. And uh, that's definitely the case with FastFetch today. And with Foxfire for that matter. 
uh, they were both successful, and I think one of the big reasons it was because of that. And people that are dedicated, reliable, and smart. Those are the attributes that I always look for. And Jack leverages those same skills himself on the client side. You really have to be able to speak to people at many different levels in order to get a contract. You have to convince the guy that's running the distribution center, the, the guy that's in IT who's providing the support. You have to convince the people that are in operations that are actually you know, going out and working with the people who are doing the physical work out there. You have to work with oftentimes the financial people and you have to speak all of their different languages in order to get their confidence that they ought to turn over some of their operation and their money to you. So this seems to be like a, a consistent theme that, that Jack brings up is this ability to communicate. And uh, I think more specifically here, what's interesting is, you know, Jack really has, has started to master this concept of being able to talk to different stakeholders where they are and having a real understanding that, you know, your customer might not be your user and that those are two different people. He doesn't directly say it that way, but um, you have a lot of different people you have to sell your concept to or your business to when you're making that quintessential pitch. So uh, just knowing how to communicate that to that particular audience member um, is what really seems to uh, contribute to what was originally Foxfire, now into his future business of, of Fast Fetch, which is something that's probably come from now as he's transitioned so much of his, his life work being in the academic setting, being a real technical specialist now into a, a business generalist. Uh, Joseph, you seem to have yeah. some ideas around what that actually might mean no, in right. parallels to yeah. it. Yeah, he and he obviously had sort of throughout the, the sort of decades of his career, he started to tack on other capability and experience and insight that sort of broaden his horizon. I, yeah, we, you know, I, I've been around a lot of developers for a long time. Uh, when, when Design Sensory was started out, we started out with a heavy and still do have a heavy technical wing. And what, what I became very experienced with or knowledgeable of is this idea of a T-shaped uh, individual. Um, and Jack is actually, uh, there, there's some, you know, there, there are a lot of metaphors for this. Jack is a potentially considered an X-shaped person, but, um, but at one point in time, he was probably a very evolved T-shaped individual. What, it, what that means simply is that the, the T means that the, the, the descender of the T kind of represents your domain level experience, that uh, specialization or skill that you have or expertise that you have that makes you... Uh, very valuable uh, to solving problems. The the crossbar on that sort of represents your ability to uh, work with other people in different disciplines or to have an understanding of sort of cross disciplines that helps you be a bit more well-rounded as a professional. And, uh, you know, it's clear that, to your point that that Jack, you know, he, he has deep level experience in computer science, in the language of, of machines, um, but he, over time, has learned how to start speaking the language of business and uh, has learned how to um, augment that with, you know, warehousing, um, information and management. He said he learned a lot about that uh, and then started to learn about finance and banking and uh, sales and, and, and so forth. So he, he certainly has added to that. The, the idea of an X-shaped person is this idea that that you know now with four or five decades of, of of doing this work, he's established great credibility, and so now he can bring together uh, other T level people uh, with great success because they will see him as a domain level expert. But then he also has the ability to speak all those languages, bring all these people together, and really like tackle 
hard problems. Um, and you know, probably a good example of this is is Johnny Ivy at Apple. He he spent twenty years as an industrial designer. He's known for the the iPod design, the iMac, the original iMac design, and he's shepherded Apple for a long time. Um, you know, as his career went on, he was able to start speaking the language of technology more, um, user interface and UX design. Uh, he was able, you know, he's a very well-rounded individual as a design thinker, so he could bring all of those people together, uh, powerful people underneath him who had who had the ability to design uh, and speak about other uh, things um, that he could sort of marshal them all together and, and, and tackle some big problems. So I think Jack is a great example of that. And I would say, Laura, that, you know, listeners, if you've never heard of a T-U-V-shaped, X-shaped type of, of metaphor for thinking about um, your skills or, or profession, uh, I would encourage you to just look it up because I think it would really help people understand how they could potentially develop their, their skills further. Well, and I would even say for those that are in hiring positions, looking at the types of team members they might want. I, even if I'm just sitting here thinking about it, if we wanted to really look at some of the most successful tech startup teams, most of those founding teams are probably T-shaped people. You're usually been asked to be a found or co-founder because you have a very specific area of expertise that nobody else has. But as we've seen from a lot of these episodes, you have to be a generalist to get that small business going. Everyone has to be responsible. In fact, even uh, Jack talks about you know taking out the trash. You know, everybody has to be a little responsible for everything. But still, you have to have that one thing that nobody else can do. Right, your superpower. Yeah. Becoming that T-shaped person or th that X-shaped person, that business generalist, isn't always an easy road, though. Yeah, I've had a lot of failures. <laughs> and you're right. Uh, you do learn a lot from failures. Probably too long to discuss them, uh, you know, and uh, even give you a full list. But I might say that the, the lessons I've learned from the failures have been that when you're working with someone in a company, have some confidence in yourself as being able to understand what's going on. I know one of the first companies I actually worked as part owner in was a software company in Louisiana. At, back in those days, we used to call them service bureaus. Basically, you did computer work for other companies and you had the big computer. And I noticed at that time, just back of the envelope calculation, it seemed to me that the income was less than the expenditures uh, by a fairly wide margin. So I went to the uh, financial officer in the company, who happened to be a CPA, and said, where am I going wrong in my, in my, my logic here? And he said, well, he said, uh, you know, as a programmer, you don't have a full understanding of all of the accounting methods and practices that we have, and uh, so uh, don't worry about that. Just go back and do some more programming. Well, I guess about a month or two after that, when the sheriff showed up to put a padlock on the building and arrest the financial uh, officer, I began to understand that, hey, if you can't understand the answers that are given to you, then either you're too dumb and shouldn't be investing your time and your money in the company, or someone's not telling you the truth. And in either case, you shouldn't be investing your time or your money in a company like that. So the thing that I learned was that, hey, ask good questions and be prepared to understand them and keep asking those questions until you get an understandable explanation. Now I'm talking about more like running a company rather than you know building products in a company, but it's all really important if you're gonna be part of ownership of the company. Finally, we wanted to know how Jack stays innovative. Uh, innovation to me is coming up with new ideas that other people haven't come up with, not necessarily brand new technologies, maybe it's using existing technologies in brand new ways. And so all of that falls into innovation. In terms of uh, why I do innovation, <laughs> it's because it's fun. If it weren't fun, then I would be doing something different. Fishing. You got it, fishing. <laughs>
I would like to visit customer sites. Prospect sites would be a better thing. Maybe they become customers. Visit, see what they're doing, see if I can catch on to their problems, steal their ideas, I'd say that, but uh, that's part of it. Uh, steal any of the ideas, good and bad, that they have and uh, then put them together into interesting ways. That's how I remain innovative. I can't simply sit at my desk, looking at my computer every day and come up with these all ideas. Maybe some people can, but I can't. I have to go out into the world and meet people. It's people like Jack that just really keep me motivated. I, I'm on the road a lot with work. And while that certainly has its challenges, but being a road warrior gives me a chance to really meet with people like Jack on a daily basis. And they're just they're so passionate and they're, they're, just, they're just smart. And it's just I feed off of that energy. And of course, I learn something almost on a daily basis from these people. Um, but it's honestly why I love what I do for the state. Um, you know, I, I think I've referenced this before, but I have to give a lot of credit to our, our secretary, Bobby Hitt, for really kind of um, liberating for us this opportunity to just kind of just try some things. You know, we try to design as much opportunity for feedback and pain points for our innovators, like what Jack does, so we can make what they do on a daily basis easier. Um, and so what we've evolved to become is almost like this weird internal incubation process for retooling economic development to actually support innovation from a business standpoint. So even projects like Scribble, you know, didn't exist, you know, a year ago, but now here we are talking and able to help really elevate them and give our, our innovators the spotlight they deserve and to be celebrated. So, you know, I, I guess just continuing to hear Jack's, people like Jack's story just keeps me personally even motivated to keep pushing and advocating for them on a daily basis. And to learn from them, right? Yes. I mean, he, he talks a lot about running a business versus building one. And, you know, it, that certainly hit home for me. I've struggled with that for a long time. Um, I do now. It's probably, you know, to his point of why do you keep being what you do? Certainly you do it because you love it. You, you do it because you're trying to hit, hit goals. I think sometimes, too, you're doing it because you want to, you know, just just overcome potentially a challenge that that you've been wrestling with for a while. You know, you want to you want to get to the end of that marathon. Um, and so when he spoke to that, I think it's also a very uh, important thing that people have to reflect on, which is that, again, you can you can do things that you want to do and do things that you have to do. And I think he you kind of need to do both. Um, and you, you've got to figure out how you can find great people uh, who have the skill to potentially help you build something so that you can then look at how to pe better run it, optimize it. Maybe um, great T-shaped people? Yes, exactly. <laughs> great T-shaped people. Um, you know, to his point, it's you, you can't probably your own, you can't evolve yourself until you find those people, yeah. right, to allow you to do that. To so, inspire and grow you. Exactly. You, you need, you depend on, on strong people in order for you yourself to become stronger. So, um, you know, I just find uh, he's, he's such a great mentor in that way, I think, in terms of all the information he has had to say in this interview for, for, for all of us. Um, and he probably doesn't even realize he's doing it. It just seems like that's just genuinely his personality is to yeah. spread his knowledge and to bring people together for a collective that's vision. probably his superpower because he's been doing it now, what, for almost five or six decades as, an, in, as, a, as yeah. a pioneer, instructor, uh, department head, and then entrepreneur, um, business owner. He's, he's clearly been able to to uh, motivate and inspire people to achieve their best. And, and, and Jack even directly references you know, his people are really his key to how he innovates. 
we're in the computer field, so obviously computers and software and Google and all of those other things we think about are, are really, really great tools. Uh, but quite honestly, I look at the people that I work with or that work for me as tools as well to keep them properly motivated, to, uh, to support them in the ways that they can be successful, get things done on time, get things done in budget. Those are the most valuable tools I have, as they would in any company probably. I'm Jack Peck, and those were my notes on innovation. This has been Of Note, a podcast that gets up close and personal with innovative people so we can learn from their successes and failures. I'm Joseph Nuther. And I'm Laura Corder. Of Note is an original production by the South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation and Design Sensory. Our producer and editor is Hunter Foster. Our sound engineer is Mike Deering, with original music by Matt Honkinen. Check out more interviews, our blog, and resource area at scribblesc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Ready, Set, Scribble. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, keep pursuing your transformational ideas. Next time on Of Note. Your interactions with the industry, your interactions with people, your interactions with uh, multiple other things, you know. I happened to meet one uh, worker uh, downstairs. We were just having a small conversation. At the end of that conversation, he used one phrase, which circled back to what the innovation that I was doing. He said, what you give is what you get. <laughs>